in John chapter 10, starting in verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say to him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. The, Lord, the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. In this last section of John chapter 10, John brings to an end his account of Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders. If you've been following along the last four chapters, we've seen Jesus perform miracles, and then he was confronted by the religious leaders. Jesus would claim to be God and call the people to believe in him, but instead of believing him in him, the religious leaders would try to kill him. This was a cycle, a pattern that we see in the last four chapters. So Jesus gave these Jewish leaders every opportunity to believe in him, and yet they refused. So these ch chapters help us to understand why uh, in the chapters ahead, which is just a few months away from this particular time period, that the Jews will finally have Jesus arrested, tried, and crucified, as we read in our lectionary this morning. But we need to understand that God has a plan and a purpose in all of this. God is going to use the hardened hearts of these religious leaders to accomplish his eternal plan by having his son crucified in order to save his people from their sins. This is exactly what Jesus preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Peter said to the same people that were calling out for Jesus' crucifixion, he says to them, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Here in this passage, Jesus is referring to those very works. And then Peter said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But then he says, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so it was God's plan and purpose that Jesus be crucified. And it was God's plan and purpose that he would use the hardness of the Jewish leadership to accomplish that 
goal. Now, just because it's God's plan or purpose that Jesus be crucified does not mean that these men were not responsible for what they did. Lawless men are still responsible. This is the doctrine of concurrence, right? That God is sovereign and man still is responsible for the choices that we make. And God can hit a straight lick from a crooked stick, right? God can use the evil intent of men's hearts to accomplish his purpose, whereas God's sovereign plan and purpose is accomplished, and yet men are still responsible for the choices that they make. Now, despite the hardness of their heart, if we keep on reading here in Scripture, we'll find that God still has mercy on many of these men and many of these Jews. The Scripture tells us that as Jesus was being crucified, as we read this morning, that he continued to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And at Pentecost, when Peter preached the gospel to the Jews, it tells us that 3,000 of these men were saved. And then it tells us that the Lord added to their number daily. So the grace of God is not beyond any person, right? In Acts 15, we find that there were some believers in the church who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. And so uh, some of the Pharisees were even saved and a part of the church. We know some of these names, like Nicodemus. We read this morning about Joseph of Arimathea. Later, Saul was a Pharisee and came to be the great apostle Paul. Apparently, many others were saved as well. And so we, again, are reminded of the grace of God. Many of them were hardened and continue to be hardened, but many of them, by the power of God's grace and through the Holy Spirit, were saved. Now, as we saw last week, Jesus made a very clear statement concerning the sovereignty of God in salvation, probably one of the clearest that we find in Scripture. And he affirms the eternal security of the sheep. First of all, Jesus told the Jews that they did not believe in him because they were not his sheep. Secondly, he told them that he gives his sheep eternal life, and they will never perish And then he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So as we looked at last week, we are doubly secure. We are secure in Christ and with the Father, and so we will never perish. Now, in verse 30, Jesus says something that has caused a lot of speculation as you can imagine. He says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, what does he mean by this? Now, the Unitarians explain that Jesus is claiming here that they are one in unity of will and design. Uh, they, they insist that Jesus was not claiming to be God here, only that Jesus 
had the same goals and direction as the Father. Now, is this how we are to understand these words, that it's just a matter of His will aligning up with the will of the Father, or is He claiming something more here? Now, if we look at this text, a really big clue to us is how the Jews understood Him. How did they understand what He just said? Well, look in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Now, why did they do that? Well, in verse 33, it says that they wanted to stone him for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understood what he was saying. Jesus was claiming to be God. He was not just claiming to have the same will and goal as the Father. As true as that was, he always did what he saw the Father doing and always said what he heard the Father saying. It's true that his will and his goal was aligned with the Father, but he was claiming something even more here. He was claiming to be one in essence with the Father. Dr. Dr. John Brown wrote of this text, he says, Harmony of will and design is not the thing spoken of here, but harmony or union of power and operation. Our Lord first says of himself, I give unto my sheep eternal life, and none shall pluck them out of my hand. He then says the same thing of the Father. None is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. He plainly then ascribes the same thing to himself as he does to the Father. Not the same will, but the same work. The same work of power. Therefore, the same power. He mentions the reason why none can pluck them out of, his, out of the Father's hand, because He is the Almighty, and no created power is re- able to resist Him. Now, we understand Jesus' claim even better when we examine the phrase in Greek. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, He did not use the masculine gender here, in the word one. He uses neuter here. And if Jesus had used the masculine gender, then he would be claiming to be the same person as the Father, which would support the modalists, that is, that the Father becomes the Son and the Son becomes the Spirit, uh, all the same person just operating in different modes of being. But Jesus used the neuter here, which suggests that Jesus was not claiming to be the same person as the Father. He was claiming to be one in essence with the Father. In other words, Jesus and the Father are the same substance, but remain two distinct persons. And now we're getting into the mystery of the Trinity here, aren't we? There is one God. We just cited this in the Apostles' Creed. There is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one in essence, one divine being, but three in persons. Now, this is what the Nicene Creed says in 325. If you go to Constantinople, then you can have the addition of the Spirit as well. But this is what the the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same, here it is, essence as the Father, through him all things were made. So to understand that Jesus is God should not be surprising to the readers of John's gospel. In fact, he started out with that very fact, didn't he? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John presents Jesus from the very first chapter in this gospel as being with God the Father, but also being God himself. And then John tells us that this Word, who is God, took on human flesh. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, Jesus is not claiming to be the Father, but he's claiming to be one in essence with the Father. But don't mistake what his claim is here. He is claiming to be God, and that's the very way the Jews understood what he was saying. As James Montgomery Boyce wrote, in theological terms, this is the same as saying that the Son is one substance with the Father and that they are equal in power and glory. Now, let's look again here at verse 31 and 32. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Again, meaning they attempted that before. And then Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? Now by now, Jesus' works should be speaking for themselves. Jesus continually appealed to his works. The works that if they were reasoning properly, would, they would understand that only someone from God could do these kinds of works. And that is one thing to claim to be God, right? I mean, any nut could claim to be God. But it's another thing to claim to be God and to demonstrate his deity by doing the kinds of works that Jesus did. It should have been enough to convince him, and that's why Jesus continually appeals to his works. If you don't believe me, at least believe in the works that I do. He says, I've shown you many good works, and that's from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And then in verse 33, the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So again, they understood that Jesus was claiming to be God, 
Richard Phillips says, those who say that Jesus never claimed personal divinity have to, be, have to reckon with this encounter in which Jesus defends himself from the charge of blasphemy, not by denying his deity, but by asserting his deity. So Jesus is claiming to be God. His works backed it up, including feeding the 5,000, making the lame walk and the blind to see, and many others that John has written about. So the religious leaders have plenty of evidence that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And this once again highlights the mystery of lawlessness, doesn't it? This highlights that men's hearts are so hardened against God that no amount of evidence is sufficient to convince them. I think this is an important lesson for apologists. We can produce all kinds of evidence for God's existence or for the resurrection of Christ, all of it very good, and we have plenty of it. But we need to understand without the Holy Spirit's work in a man's heart to change them, to regenerate them. Our labor is in vain because men will refuse to believe. They are unwilling to believe. It's not a matter of intellect. It's a matter of their will. So the problem is, is, is not the evidence. The problem is that they are unwilling. Again, this highlights the bondage of the will. The will of man is not free to choose. Contrary to the message that is preached from many pulpits, right? The free will of man. And some believe that the free will of man is God's highest virtue, that he won't override man's free will. But as we saw a few weeks ago in Ephesians, we are not saved by our wills. We're saved by the will of God. It's his will. So there's more than sufficient evidence but they are unwilling to believe. The same is true today. Now, let's look at this charge of blasphemy. It's getting ready to get real weird in here. Right? So bear with me. You might want to take a pen out and write some of these down. Hopefully I will answer more questions than I raise in this particular passage. So let's look here in verse 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say to him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now, as you can imagine, the commentators are all over the map on this one. So what is Jesus arguing here? This seems, this seems real strange. Well, it's not surprising that the Mormons use this as a proof text for their belief that all good Mormons will become gods. Now, I think to understand what the Lord is getting at, we need to look at the verse that he is quoting from. Actually, we need to look at the psalm, the whole psalm that he's quoting from and get kind of the idea. You, you understand that when, 
we read quotes in scriptures. Oftentimes when the Jews quoted a passage, they weren't just quoting that little verse. By quoting a verse, they were importing and implying the whole context of that verse. So the assumption is that people are biblically literate enough to understand the context, and so the point is driven home. And so let's look at Psalm 82. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Psalm 82, starting there in verse 1. Verse 1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. This is even more pronounced when you um, understand the Hebrew there. This is, you know, the word Elohim, Elohim in Hebrew. And this literally says, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. And then it says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Think about that. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And here's where Jesus was quoting from. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then he says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So just as an observation here, God is speaking to a council. That's what the verse 1 says. It is a council. A council of those who God calls gods. And evidently, this council failed, failed in its task. And rather than judging and ruling justly, they began to be unjust and unrighteous. Therefore, God is going to judge them. And he will cause them to die like men. Very strange. So, what are we to make of this. Well, I'll give you some other verses here to consider, but this divine council was a divine council that God established to rule from. And apparently, here is the minority view. In fact, many commentators go out of their way to not take this view, and that is God established a divine council of angels through which that he would govern the nations with. Um, now, modern scholars don't like this view, and I think there's a reason why. You remember a few years ago, Andy Stanley said, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. 
I think the reason why he wants to unhitch from the Old Testament is to get away from some of the weirdness, right? Some of the things that we in the modern church don't want to answer for, particularly things about homosexuality, the law, and some other things like maybe this weird passage, right? And I, I think that modern scholars reject it because they don't want one more crazy thing to answer for. And we need to, to realize that oftentimes as evangelicals, as, as people of the modern era, we, we think more like materialists than we should. We need to understand that there is a lot more going on in the world out there that we can't see than we really understand. There is a battle going on. There is a war. I mean, this goes along with Genesis 6, does it not? Where the sons of God married the daughters of men and conceived the Nephilim, a race of giants. Well, that's weird. We can't have that. So really what the modern scholars do is say, oh, that's not really angels. This is the bloodline of Seth. And they're marrying the daughters of men who are of the bloodline of Cain. But that still doesn't explain why it creates a race of Nephilim or those who are men of renown, men of old. And if you stop to think about it, the reality of this may actually give some insight into the Greek pantheon. The gods. Well, for the same reason, I think, scholars want to explain away Psalm 82. They do not want to see this as angels. But you can't escape some of the internal evidence that he's talking to angels, particularly the phrase, son of the Most High, like sons of God. That phrase, sons of God, is found in Genesis 6. It's also found in Deuteronomy 32.8, and I think here's some very good, a very good text to support this idea that God put together a divine council through which to rule the nations with, and apparently that divine council went wrong. Look in Deuteronomy 32.8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. What it's telling us here, I believe, is that God created the nations and appointed each one from that divine council, the sons of God, over that particular nation. Now, at some point or another, that divine council was in rebellion against God. And so they had the nations, and then Yahweh himself chose Abraham and Israel to begin to work through. This means that the gods that the nations worshipped could very well be these beings that had rebelled against God and were taking the nations in a wrong direction. 
And that's why God's judgment was pronounced on them. You will die like men, even though you're sons of God, you will die like men. And so God was bringing judgment on them. Now, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, we also see that it appears that there is an angel or a prince over Persia, an angelic being, when uh, Daniel was praying and the vision was delayed, right? And the angel, I believe Gabriel, said, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now, he's not talking about a man here. Gabriel said, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So whatever was going on, Gabriel was sent to give Daniel an answer, and yet he, on his way to give Daniel the answer, the prince of Persia, uh, apparently an angel who was over Persia, was blocking Gabriel, keeping him from giving Daniel the message. And then Gabriel says, and then Michael came to help me. (laughs) Again, there's a lot more going on out there than we realize, isn't there? So this describes a warfare in the spiritual realm. And so we, again, need to remember and other places where the sons of God are clearly speaking of angels. Job 1.6 Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Job 38.7 when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. These clearly are referring to angelic beings. And so again, if in this context, if God is merely talking to men, why should it be strange that these men will die like men? But I uh, will at least say If you have a study Bible, it may have a notation there to say these unjust judges were rulers in Israel, right? Now, it's possible. We should not rule out the possibility that this psalm may also be meant for men who would read and apparently sing this song, warning them about not judging unjustly. And, of course, this is the most popular interpretation of this, that he's speaking to the judges of Israel who were unjust. So it's possible that God could be speaking to both angels and to humans through this psalm. This is not uncommon in Isaiah. Isaiah 14, God is speaking to the king of Babylon. But he says in verse 13, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now we recognize that is a message that is concerning Satan. We most, most of us hold of that. But it's clearly addressed to the king of Babylon, but God is addressing the king and speaking through the king to the power behind that, to Satan himself. So it's possible that Psalm 82 can be meant specifically for the divine counsel, but also for the unjust judges 
of Israel. So what is the point that Jesus is making here? With all that background, why did Jesus appeal to this psalm? Why did he appeal to them to say, isn't it written? Scriptures can't be broken. You are gods. Why did Jesus appeal to that? Um, well, again, Jesus was accusing, uh, the Jews were accusing Jesus of blasphemy because he claimed to be God. And then Jesus said, well, the psalm says you are gods. So there's two possibilities here. If the sons of God were these angelic beings who went rogue and began to go against God and God was claim, uh, pronouncing judgment on them, if they can be called gods, these sons of God can be called gods, then how much more should the Son of God be called God? Particularly when the power of these angels, in the context of Psalm 82, these angels were going to be stripped of their power and be given to another. Psalm 82.8, the last verse, what does it say? Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. What that tells us is that these, this divine counsel is going to be stripped of their authority and control of the nations, and then the nations are to be given to God. Many believe that this happened at the resurrection of Christ. When before he went up into heaven, what did he tell his disciples? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go get the nations. The nations have been given to me. Go get them. That reminds us of Psalm 2.8, doesn't it? Ask of me, God the Father says to his Son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So Psalm 82, and all of these verses together, shows that God strips the power from these, this divine counsel and gives all the authority to his Son. And he is the one who inherits the nation. So Jesus is arguing from lesser to greater, a technique that the rabbis often used. So if Psalm 82 is talking about human judges of Israel, the argument is in a similar fashion. They would be gods in the sense that they ruled under God's authority, but they overstepped that authority and began to judge unjustly. Therefore, God was going to bring judgment on them. So the point being that Jesus was pointing out that the psalmist calls either angels or men gods, and the religious rulers who probably sang and read that psalm hundreds of times, they may have had it memorized, they did not charge the psalmist with blasphemy for saying such a thing. And that was the point. So Jesus was showing them that they lacked a biblical basis for their charge. 
Now, we should also make note that Psalm 82 condemns unjust rulers, which very well may also be Jesus turning it around on them and condemning them for ruling unjustly. There's also a touch of irony here. John often puts a little irony in his gospel. Verse 33, the Jew says, You being a man, make yourself God. What's the irony there? It's exactly the opposite, isn't it? He is God who has made himself a man. Now, before we move away from verse 35, we shouldn't miss Jesus' comment here about Scripture. I think this is very important. Verse 35, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken... So what, you need, what we need to understand here is that Jesus referred to the Scripture as the Word of God, right? And then he says, this Word, this Scripture, cannot be broken. Now think about here, this for a second. Jesus prefaced this. The Word of God cannot be broken. And he quotes one little phrase in the psalm, which means pick any phrase in Scripture, any word in Scripture, and it is the Word of God, and it cannot be broken. Not one word. A.W. Pink says here, What a high honor did he place here upon the written word. In making use of this verse from the psalmist against his enemies, the whole point of his argument lay in a single word, God's. And the fact that it occurred in the the book divinely inspired. The scriptures were the final court of appeal, and here the Lord insists on their absolute authority and verbal inerrancy. Why do we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Because that's what Jesus believed and taught. J.C. Ryle said, Few passages appear to me to prove so incontrovertibly the plenary inspiration and divine authority of every word in the original text of the Bible. So the Bible is God's Word. We should stand on it. It is our authority. It is what we should compare any tradition by, any belief by, to the words of God. Now, Jesus said the Word cannot be broken. That word comes from the word luo, and any first-semester Greek student knows that word luo because it is used to memorize one of many, many, many declensions. So luo here means to destroy, tear down, break to pieces, dismiss, dissolve, remove, release, annihilate, or eliminate. So you get the picture. The Word of God cannot be dissolved, removed, destroyed, teared down, eliminated. 
Jesus said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away before his words pass away. So Jesus has a high view of Scripture. So therefore, his followers should have that same view as well. Now, let's take this whole passage together, starting in verse 34, going down to 38. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? There again, he's claiming to be sent from the Father. He comes from heaven down to the earth, right? He is sent. The Father consecrated him, uh, sanctified him is another word for that. Set him apart. Sent him into the world. And he says, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Again, the context of Psalm 82, he was speaking to the sons of God. And so here he is saying, I am the Son of God. How much more should I be called God then? If I'm doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me if I'm not doing it. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You should know by my works and miracles that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And so Jesus doubles down on his claim to deity. And his claim is backed up not just with words, but also his works. And there's a little bit of application for us here, right? People should not believe our message when we proclaim the gospel to them. That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day, and now we are children of God. People should not just believe us for what we say. They should believe us because our lives and our works back up that message. Too often, Christians are not known by their good works. We're known to be sayers and not doers. That should not be. People should see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And if Jesus was saying, don't believe what I say, but believe my works, that shows how important it is that our actions and our lives match our words as well. And so, what was the response of the Jews to all of this in verse 39? Again, they sought to arrest him. But that wily Jesus, it just says he escaped from their hands. Again, it was just like, I, I, that, I would love to see that, wouldn't you? I would love to see that. In Galilee, they're getting ready to throw him over the cliff, and Jesus just walked through their midst. We read uh, a, a few months ago or weeks ago, Jesus was in the temple, and they were wanting to stone him, and it just Jesus just left. I mean, you, you, it makes you wonder what... Did God put their brain in a fog? Did Jesus disappear? You know, do a Lord of the Rings kind of a thing? I don't know. Uh, I, you know, but for whatever reason, 
they have to have been really frustrated. Here, we're going to arrest him now, and then he's gone. Which tells us what Jesus continued to remind us in this gospel. My hour has not yet come. Not a man on the earth and not a devil in hell could lay a finger on Jesus until Jesus allowed it, until it was his time. So what does Jesus do next? He walks away from them. They were unable to arrest him. In verse 40 and 42, it says that he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And so that four chapters of the duel with the Jewish leaders, enough time to really harden their heart and get them mad because three months later, they are going to finally grab him and crucify him according to the will of God. Now, while he's out across the Jordan, it says, And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And then that last verse, and many believed in him there. What a relief, right? After all of the hardness of heart and rejecting Jesus and coming against Jesus, trying to kill him and arrest him, Jesus leaves the religious leaders that were very unteachable. That's a reminder to all of religious leaders, including pastors, not to be unteachable. I've found in my own life that pastors can be some of the most unteachable people around. But we should be guided by Scripture, and if we look intently at the Word of God and see that a belief that we have held for so very long may not hold up to scrutiny, we should be ready and willing to believe what the Scripture says and not what our tradition or what our own beliefs say. We should be willing to change our minds. That's humility. Pride will just dig in and don't confuse me with the facts. This is what I believe and I won't do anything else. So we have to be reminded of that. Many people, many of us can. If you've been Christians a long time, you can do the same thing. You could dig into your own personal belief and not want to be changed or corrected or informed by Scripture. So it is a relief now that Jesus goes out into away from the city, away from the religious leaders, and we find people are open there to him. And many believed in him there. So Jesus went across the Jordan and found more sheep that responded to his voice. And he gave them eternal life. And we need to understand that that same shepherd, that chief shepherd, is still calling his sheep, still calling his sheep through the message of the gospel even today. That message is continuing to spread. And like many believed in him there, many more continue to believe in him here 
And my prayer is that you are among his sheep. If you are, that is your testimony. That the shepherd came to you and you heard his voice. And you believed in him and you responded to him all by the power of God's working in you. And I pray this morning that all of us are numbered among his sheep. And if not, perhaps this morning you can hear that shepherd calling to you to believe in him and follow him.